taking them wander around. Now, I need to start this week by just saying, Becky spoke last week fabulously well, and she mentioned some favorite films that, you know, some of our cast teams had, and um, she said it in a joking way, but unfortunately some of you had believed her um, that my favorite film was The Sound of Music. Now, I, I'm sure it's a great piece of cinema, but I just felt I needed to set the record straight that it, it, it actually isn't that way. Back when we were at college, myself and Beth, when we met down at Royal Holloway College in Egham, we were involved in leading the Christian fellowship on campus there, and we just started coming along to this church. And I got a call one Sunday afternoon from a group of people who were part of the Christian fellowship there. And they said they'd just come back from church, and one of their little group of friends, this young girl, probably about 19 years old, she'd come home from church and she could no longer speak, and specifically she couldn't say the name of Jesus. She was in her first year, lovely Christian girl. They said, Andy, can you come and help? And I was thinking, no, but I said, yes. And so went up to campus to where this group of um, our friends were, and this girl couldn't talk. It was like she was, she was in another world. And as we were talking with her friends, I was going over the healing prayer model that we were uh, engaging with as we are coming to the life of this church, and I shared with us um, three weeks ago. And we were asking what was going on. We couldn't talk to her because she couldn't talk, but we were talking to her friends. And we were at the same time asking the Holy Spirit for revelation of what's going on here. And we then prayed a very simple prayer as we we felt that sort of insight from the Holy Spirit. We simply prayed for the presence of the Holy Spirit to come more and for him to break the clouds that were over this girl's life. Immediate change. The oppression lifted. She started to talk. We prayed that she'd be filled with the Holy Spirit. She could now say the name of Jesus again. We went home for our tea. What do you think was going on there? Back in 2013, there was a film release called Insidious Chapter 2. It's a supernatural horror film. I have not watched it. At the same time, the polling agency YouGov conducted a survey in the United Kingdom, and they asked if people believed in the existence of the devil. 65% 65% said no, 18% said yes, 17% were not sure. Back in the 1990s, I remember reading some books by a Christian author called Frank Peretti. Some of you may have read them. Uh, books like this, Present Darkness, Piercing the Darkness. Uh, Christian fiction, there were demons everywhere. Under every bed cover, under every table and chair, around every corner. And so maybe you're someone that believes that demons are everywhere, and when things go wrong, blame the devil. Or maybe you're someone that doesn't believe that demons exist. The Christian author C.S. Lewis, you know, he wrote the Narnia books, but he also wrote a lot of you know, more deeper Christian literature. And he wrote this, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils or demons. One is to disbelieve in their existence, and the other is to believe and feel an excessive or unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors, and hail a materialist 
or a magician with the same delight. Personally, I believe that the devil and the demonic world is real. They want to make our lives hell. And so if you're here this morning and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, great that you're here. I love you. Jesus loves you. The devil does not. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a Christian here this morning, the devil really does not like you. I hope that is not news to you. If it is, I've done your favor this morning. The devil really does not like you. And so what I want to talk about this morning is freedom from the enemy. And it's part of our ongoing series around healing and freedom. If you have a Bible, we're going to look at, look at a story that we'll find in Matthew chapter 17. You might have paper one or a gadget. The words will come up on the screen in a moment. At the start of this chapter, um, Jesus has gone up to the top of a mountain. He's gone up with his three closest friends, Peter, James, and John. And Jesus is transfigured. There's a blaze of glory, a blaze of light. They see Jesus in a fuller um, revelation of his glory. And Moses and Elijah, who had died, giant characters in the Old Testament, but they appear as well. Incredible scene. And then Jesus and these three disciples come back down the mountain. We'll pick up the story in verse 14. When they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of the boy, and he was healed from that moment. Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, Why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, Because you have so little faith. Truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Now, I don't know what you believe about the existence of the devil and the demonic world. One thing that I know is that Jesus believes in their existence. Back in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is tempted and has a very real and personal experience of the devil. Matthew chapter 17, the story that we've just read, is one of many stories in the Gospels where Jesus says that demons are at work. So what are demons? Well, the Bible isn't 100% clear. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, they're described as evil spirits. In 2 Peter 2, Jude 6, and Revelation 12, they're described as fallen angels. In Ephesians chapter 6, uh, we get a description of a variety of spiritual dark forces that are under a unified head. Jesus doesn't give us a really good definition. He doesn't give us a demonology, if you will. What Jesus does is he casts them out. He comes to set people free. That's what he does. So the starting point to finding freedom, in my view, is to acknowledge that the battle is 
have the signpost to acknowledge that the battle is real. I believe that we live in the middle of a battle between good and evil, between light and dark. So it's like if you read the stories of C.S. Lewis, the Narnia books, you see that battle going on. If you've read The Lord of the Rings by Tolkien, you see that same kind of battle. But what we see in our world is not fiction. It is real. I believe that the devil and demons are real. They are 100% opposed to God, and they are 100% opposed to God's creation, and that includes people like you and me. And again, quoting C.S. Lewis, he wrote this. He says, There is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. There's a battle going on. There's a battle going on. And if we're going to do well in a battle, we have to acknowledge that we're in one. Otherwise, we'll go around life wondering why some of the stuff happens. It's like if you're walking through a physical battle and you didn't know you were in one, you know, a mine would go off on the side, you know, a missile would go over, there'd be sniper fire, and you'd be merrily walking through a battlefield going, this is a bit odd. I was just out for a walk. And there's all of this carnage going off around me. What is going on? It would be the same in our life if we're not aware that there is a battle that we find ourselves engaged in. And the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 6 says that our primary battle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. There is a battle going on. And in this battle, and I hope you know this, but if not, this will be news to you. In this battle, the enemy does not play fair. He does not play fair. There's no Geneva Convention for this battle. The devil lies, he is the father of lies, he cheats, and he takes advantage. Back to our story in Matthew chapter 17, this man brings his son along. In Jewish culture, that meant this boy was probably under 13, otherwise he would be described as a man. He's described as a boy, probably under 13. Young boy. And this oppression, this demonic oppression, led to seizures, led to him falling into water, and falling into fire. Now, if you're a parent here, and that was happening to one of your kids, you'd be saying right now, that is not fair. That's my boy. That is not fair what is going on. The devil does not play fair. The enemy takes advantage of situations in order to get a foothold and access into our lives. And here, very quickly, are just some things that give access to the enemy in our lives. He can take access through our own sin, the things that we do wrong. He can take access through the sin done to us. He can take access through generational sin, going back generations. He can take access through sexual sin. You know, sex opens a spiritual connection to another person, and we become open to their stuff. He can take access through traumatic events that we experience. That's not playing fair. And he can take access through um, involvement with the occult. You know, we might think it's just harmless, you know, horoscopes, palm reading, Ouija board, things like that. The devil doesn't play fair. He will access often through those things. The Apostle Peter writes this in his letter, 1 Peter 5 and verse 8. Be alert and of sober. 
never like. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Prowls around. I've been on safari in Kenya. I've seen lions hunting. They go for the weak and the injured animals. Not fair. We need to remember that the enemy is strong, but Jesus is stronger. That was a good point to say, Amy. The enemy is strong, but Jesus is stronger. Do you remember that story that I shared of that girl in our college? The enemy stopped her talking or saying the name of Jesus, but he is stronger. In this story in Matthew chapter 17, this boy is caused to fall into the fire. Back in the Old Testament, stories of King Saul, he was afflicted by an evil spirit, and there's at least a couple of occasions where he picks up a javelin and hurls it at David to try and kill him. The enemy has power to make hell on earth. But if you're a follower of Jesus, you're not to be scared of the battle. In fact, we're called into that battle to find freedom for ourselves and to bring freedom to other people. But we would do well not to underestimate the strength of the enemy. When I hear people saying, I'm just going to go and have a rant at the devil, I'm thinking, okay, I'm personally going to go to Jesus because I don't have the power to take on the devil, but I know someone who does. And so I am going to go to Jesus because I know that he is stronger than the enemy. The enemy is strong, but Jesus is stronger. Jesus sets this boy free. Jesus set our friend at college free. Jesus died to win the battle over sin and through his death and resurrection to break the power of death. Spoiler alert, that's how the story ends. Jesus wins. Why? Because he is stronger than the enemy. So the reality I believe that we live in is that we have an enemy. But Jesus comes to set oppressed people free. And he sends disciples, people like you and I, out into this world to be part of that battle and to drive out demons. So how can we bring freedom to others, and how can we find greater freedom for ourselves? I'm just going to share a few thoughts this morning. I don't have time to unpack this in a whole lot of detail, but I hope that what I share is helpful to us um, as we try and find greater freedom in our own lives, and as we try and be the kind of people that bring freedom into our world. Let's go back to the story in Matthew chapter 17 as we look for ways that we can find freedom. Let me read again verses 17 and 18. This is, you know, this man has brought his boy to the disciples. They've had a go, but they've 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 not succeeded. And so Jesus says this. He says, you unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon, 
and it came out of the boy, and he was healed from that moment. Now, if you read various commentaries on this text, you will find that there are a variety of views as to whom Jesus is addressing. So, maybe he's replying to the boy's father. The boy has certainly answered, the, the man's father has answered the question. So, maybe it's just that kind of reply. Maybe Jesus is talking to the crowd that are gathered. Maybe he was talking to the religious establishment. Maybe he was talking to the disciples. I suspect there are elements that he's talking to all of those people. But there does seem, I don't know whether you, I don't know how you read verses 17 and 18. I, I, I pick up a little bit of frustration in the, word, in the, in the, in the words of Jesus here.
that they were demonically oppressed. You, I, I hope he didn't call them a little demon at that moment. You know, when you're on the way to a you know, parent's birthday party and they're dressed them all up and they're jumped in a puddle. But I, I suspect you didn't immediately think that they were demonically oppressed when they jumped into a puddle. Did you? Probably didn't think. So, how do we know? How would we know what is going on? See, how did Jesus know that this boy who was falling into water at times, how did he know that that was a demonic oppression and not a boy being a boy? How did he know? How would we know that if someone is spiritually oppressed, or if there is a medical condition going on, or a psychological condition going on, or maybe deeply suppressed emotional pain, how might we know? Bottom line, we need discernment. It is a gift of the Holy Spirit. And so we need the Holy Spirit to reveal what is going on, to shine light onto circumstances, to expose darkness. And we need that gift, because you've probably read the media and have seen practices in you know, certain places around the church which are deeply damaging to people. We need the gift of discernment. Now you may have noticed throughout this talk I've referred to oppression. And that, that is intentional simply because it is a better, in my view, and I've read quite a bit about this, it is a better translation of, of it's better to say oppression or influence than possession. It is a better translation of the Greek text that we find in the New Testament. And you might also be asking, well, what about me? Andy, I'm a follower of Jesus. Can I be oppressed now that the Holy Spirit is living in me? That's a really good question to ask. I believe that a Christian can be oppressed by the enemy. I believe that through personal experience, through what I've seen, and I believe it from the Bible. And I'll just throw up some of the texts. You can go and have a look at those in your own time. But you'll see Saul in the Old Testament, 1 Samuel chapter 19. Judas Iscariot, John 13. Uh, there's a crippled woman who's described as a daughter of Abraham, a faith, faithful person in Luke chapter 13. The Apostle Peter in Matthew 16. Um, Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. So I believe it is possible for any of us to experience the oppression of the enemy simply because he doesn't like us and wants to make our lives better. So how might we know? How might we know if we're experiencing some oppression in our life? How might we know that for someone else? Well, just imagine you have a friend. Not that you have a friend, but just imagine a friend. And just imagine some of the things going on in their life. Maybe... Uh, they just all of a sudden do not seem to be themselves. I'm not mean they're just having a bad day, but over you know, a period of time, they just think they just, there's something that's just very different about them in a not good way. Maybe they share with you a sense of feeling tormented in some way. Maybe they say, you know, whenever I sit down to read the Bible or whenever I sit down to pray, it's just like my mind is flooded with invasive thoughts, but not good thoughts. Thoughts that just mean I can't read the Bible, I can't pray. There is this, there is this, just this sense of torment going on. Maybe your friend finds the presence of God, the presence of the Holy Spirit, an impossible place to be around. Again, there was someone else in the college that we went to. Don't, the college that we went to was great. It wasn't all messed up. Um, but I remember one one person. Whenever the worship 
get music started, they would faint. They would fall over. But not in a good Holy Spirit. Maybe your friend has a pain in their back and you pray for their back. And then they say, oh, that's great, but now my leg hurts. So you pray for their leg. And then they say, oh, that's great, but now my shoulder hurts. And now you're thinking, that's weird. That's weird. Maybe things just keep going wrong in their life. Again, I remember someone else that we knew. But if something went wrong in life, I knew it was them. If someone was going to lose a job, if someone was going to go and have an accident, if someone was going to crash a car, it would always be them. Maybe you experienced that, or your friend experiences that. Maybe your friend is simply aware of the heaviness or an oppression over their life. It's like dark storm clouds, just swamping everything. Maybe that is the experience. So how can we find greater freedom? How can we find it for ourselves? And how can we help bring it to others? Well, I love the roadmap that Bethany shared with us last week from Psalm chapter 51. And I'm just going to share that again briefly with us this morning. Because I think it was incredibly helpful in this area of finding freedom. And the first step is that we self-examine. That we come before God and we ask, what is going on in my life, in the life of the people that I'm around? What is going on? We self-examine. In the words of the psalmist, search my heart, O God. Search my heart. Secondly, we confess our sin to God. You know, did you notice that a number of those access points that I described were around sin, those things that we do where we go the wrong way, and those things can provide a doorway into our life for the enemy to take advantage of. And so we confess our sin. We come to God and we ask for His forgiveness. That's the third step. We ask for forgiveness. And we receive forgiveness. We take God at His word. You know, God says, we read it in 1 John, if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sin. See, we have to do more than just confess. We need to receive the forgiveness of God. And a core part of receiving the forgiveness of God is taking God at His word. When God says that He forgives, we trust Him. When we, with a good heart, good conscience, confess our sin to God, we trust Him to have forgiven our sin, to have blotted it out, to have fully covered it in the blood of Jesus Christ. We trust Him. We receive that forgiveness. Fourthly, we pursue relationship with God. We do everything that we can to press into God's presence. I think um, worship is a particularly helpful way of doing that. You know, I read earlier that verse from Peter's letter where he talks about the devil prowling around like a lion. Here's the very next verse that Peter writes, verse 9. He says, resist him. In other words, this lion is prowling around and he wants to have you for dinner. Resist him. Resist him. Standing firm in the faith. Because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. One, that means don't become disconnected from other people. 
All of us are going through the same kind of thing. We become vulnerable when we get separated. Have you noticed that's what happens on the plains of Africa? It's that animal that gets isolated, that gets eaten by the lion. There is a protectiveness that comes from being in community. But do you notice what, what Peter says? And um, he says, resist him. Stand firm. Resist the devil. James says pretty much the same kind of thing in his letter. He says, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil. And he will flee from you. Say yes to God. surrender ourselves. James says one to say to God give grace to the humble. Those that will resist the enemy and say yes to God receive the grace. We receive the strength that we need to resist. But we do it in the context of community. And that's the fifth thing, fifth part of the roadmap, is that all of these things are best done as we journey with other people. We're vulnerable when we journey on our own. And so often we'll need the help and the prayers of other people. We'll need people to confess our sin to. We'll need people to pray for us. Sometimes we'll need prayer ministries from people who have particular expertise or experience in helping others find spiritual freedom. I want to close just by saying this. We have an enemy comes to steal life, and who comes to destroy, and who comes to rob us of freedom, the freedom that Jesus has won for us on the cross. He comes to try and take that away. He wants to make our lives hell, and to separate us from God. And so I love what Jesus says in John chapter 8, and this was part of one of our songs this morning. A slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So, if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Do you believe that? That's a rhetorical question at one level, but ask yourself, do you believe that? If the son sets you free, Sickness in our bodies, oppression, assault of the enemy, 
for the greatest freedom is from sin and death. Simply because our sin cannot go with us into eternity with Jesus. It has to be dealt with first. And our death has to be dealt with, otherwise we can't do eternity. And Jesus died to free us from our sin and to give us eternal life. The greatest freedom we can experience. And so I would love to pray for us this morning. And you may be here this morning and you've never... Uh, come to a point in your life where you've said yes to Jesus, where you've said yes to that gift of freedom. So I would love to just pray a prayer. I'm going to pray it personally. And it might be that you're here this morning and you pray this prayer for the first time. Or you might be here and you've prayed this prayer a thousand times. And I would encourage you to pray it again. To say thank you to God for the freedom that He gives to us. So just as we bow our heads and, and close our eyes, let, let, me, let me lead us in prayer. And as I say, you can make this your own. Jesus, thank you that you are stronger than my enemies. Jesus, thank you that you came into this world to win my freedom. Jesus, I'm sorry where I do stuff, where I sin, that robs me of that freedom. And so, Jesus, I'm grateful that you died for me broken body and shed blood makes a way for my sin to be forgiven and your resurrection provides me with eternal life that conquers death. And so Jesus, I say that I'm sorry. I reach out to you to forgive me. Jesus, I reach out to you for eternal life, for ultimate freedom. I say yes to you. I open my heart to you. I pray that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit, the guarantee of eternal freedom. 